Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. This week we'll be talking about the prospects for an AIDS vaccine, which seem a little brighter now than they did a year ago. Recently, I think there's been cause for renewed optimism in the field. Optimism that's um, derived from our knowledge that people are able to make antibodies that broadly neutralize HIV. And Science magazine will tell us why we feel unhappy when we let our minds wander. Whether at work, sweeping the floor, taking care of children, or really any activity, including having sex, new research in the latest issue of Science suggests that focusing your mind on what you are doing while you are doing it is correlated with being happier. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. This week, I'm alone in the studio. But my FT colleague Andrew Jack will keep me company on the phone from Brussels. Hello, Andrew. Hello there. What's taken you to Brussels this time? A conference on innovation in healthcare, organised by the Friends of Europe, a group that develops think tank ideas and so on. So it's been discussing with John Daly, the European Health Commissioner, and a number of other senior Brussels officials and representatives from industry and medicine and patients groups. The challenge is how you create anything cross-border from the level of Brussels downwards or even sharing information across borders. The challenge, I think, is that so often each member state in health, more than almost any other area of public policy, wants to keep political control. So quite a tension, although we did hear quite a lot of new interesting ideas and initiatives. The health commissioner has greater responsibility these days for food, for health, for the pharmaceutical industry and regulation than he did in the past. And at the same time, a lot of ideas we heard from the Belgian presidency at the moment of the commission and how they've been working, for example, on a central coordinated plan for the purchase of flu vaccines and another discussion around sharing of data to get more coordinated agreement on the value of drugs and new innovative products. The sad thing is it always seems to take that sort of crisis, rising drug prices or a flu pandemic, to get European leaders mobilized at the EU level. Yes, this resonates a bit with the subject we were discussing the other week when I was in Brussels and you were here in London about getting research health infrastructures across Europe, unified clinical trials, for example. Yes, and we heard from a number of uh, clinicians, for example, in oncology about the challenges, the bureaucracy of clinical trial rules as they currently stand, and a lot of discussion about partnership, how on earth to get industry patient groups, civil society, the non-profit sector, together with regulators and payers and policymakers internationally so that they can try to think of more efficient approaches. And one of the debates, of course, is around the growing role of prevention and the idea of how you can get patients perhaps to value healthcare more when, of course, for most of them in Europe, it effectively is free or at least it's one step removed. It's paid for through their taxes or through insurance, premia, 
and they don't see the direct link. They have obviously the intermediary of doctors and specialists. So it's a much more fragmented market and one where very often, as people argue, Europeans will typically spend more on alcohol or tobacco or bad health practices, as it were, than they will on their own health. Are there any cross-European EU health agencies that you think are already working well? Obviously, we've got the European Medicines Agency based here in London. There's the European Centre for Disease Control in Sweden. They're both up and running. Are they working well? What, did they feature in the discussions? Yeah, they did. We've got representatives from them, and indeed the World Health Organization that interacts with the European levels as well. And it has to be said, in the last few years, I think the EU policymakers, given those current political constraints, have been quite imaginative. We have an orphan drug system that stimulates research on very rare diseases by encouraging uh, more attractive and rapid terms for approvals for medicines meeting unmet medical needs. There's been a lot of coordination around flu. There's been other initiatives like the Innovative Medicines Initiative, which is trying to bring together academic researchers with drug companies and funders to actually analyze some of the things that they consider should be pre-competitive, so where there could be greater coordination. And there's discussion going on, as there was today at the panel, about how there should be greater sharing of risk as well as reward from healthcare systems buying the benefits of innovation alongside drug companies and others working on on those issues. But the other thing, apart from the products, the drugs, the devices, and so on, is a real frustration in terms of reality about innovation in management and healthcare delivery, about how doctors are organized, about how budgets work, about how you get greater efficiencies out of the system, speeding up diagnosis, prevention, changing people's behavior, rather than simply thinking about the relatively small proportion of the total health spend in Europe that goes on those commodity inputs. How much of a role is the pharmaceutical industry playing? How much role are the companies playing in pushing this forward? Well, the companies are clearly very keen to see both stimulation measures that encourage them to invest more in research and development, to ease any perceived regulatory barriers, and above all, post approval of new medicines to ensure that there is widespread and consistent uptake. The pullback, of course, is whether there's a little bit too much focus on a lot of those innovations in a biomedical sense. And even in the narrow space of of drugs, rather less attention paid to, for example, adherence by patients to make sure they continue to take their medicines in the long term, let alone that huge area that should be much larger, which is health prevention makes such a difference, but is still so underinvested in. Okay, well, let's move on now to a specific disease where innovation is very much needed. Scientists have been working for more than 25 years on a vaccine that could prevent the transmission of HIV, the AIDS virus. It's been a frustrating process, partly because HIV is one of the most variable and fastest changing viruses on Earth. But the outlook has become a bit brighter recently. This week, the Royal Society is running a big vaccines meeting in London, and I caught up with one of the world's leading HIV vaccine researchers there, Gary Nabel, who is director of the Vaccine Research Centre at the US National Institutes of Health. I asked him about the mood in AIDS vaccine research today. Recently, I think there's been cause for renewed optimism in the field. 
optimism that's um, derived from our knowledge that people are able to make antibodies that broadly neutralize HIV, uh, that there has been some success, at least in the most uh, recent HIV vaccine trial from last year in Thailand, and the fact that we're now able to isolate these new monoclonal antibodies that have a degree of breadth of neutralization that we've never seen before. Let's take those three points in turn, starting with clinical trials. Tell us why the Thai trial, whose results were announced last year, is encouraging. One of the lessons from the Thai trial is that in people who were vaccinated with this combination pox virus and protein, there was a reduction in the number of individuals who became infected. It was about a 31% reduction. That's the first time in an AIDS vaccine trial that we have seen a vaccine block infection. We're talking about blocking infection as opposed to just controlling infection. And when we're able to block infection, that's really the goal of a primary public health preventive measure. And knowing that that's possible to do, although it's with modest efficacy, tells us that the goal that we have for an AIDS vaccine is at least, in theory, achievable. The second point you made was about the discovery of broadly neutralizing antibodies in people with AIDS or HIV infection. Tell tell us what they are and why they're so important. Well, A number of groups around the world have been doing surveys of the serum of people who are infected with HIV. And when those surveys have been done on different continents by different laboratories, we have seen consistently that approximately 10 to 25% of people can make antibodies that neutralize diverse strains of the virus. Those neutralizing antibodies have historically been our best guide to developing vaccines. Now, knowing that people can make those antibodies against HIV, even people who've been infected by the virus and already have a damaged immune system, tells us that, again, there are structures on the virus that would be susceptible, and now our task is just to define what those vulnerable structures are. And where do monoclonal antibodies come into the picture? Well, when you normally look in the serum of people, you're looking at a collection of hundreds of thousands to millions of different antibodies. Now, with new techniques of cellular and molecular biology, we can go to individual B cells that make antibodies and look at those one at a time. The advantage is that it's a very pure antibody. It's all the same. And with those pure antibodies, it gives us an opportunity, again, to pinpoint the structures that are vulnerable. And it also tells us where on the virus we need to go in order to abstract from the virus those parts of it that we need to have in a vaccine. So encouraging science in the lab... What's the likely time scale of getting it out first into field trials and then as a licensed, effective, preventive vaccine for HIV? It's important to recognize that we're going to be at this for a while. 
And generally speaking, from the time we have a good clinical lead till the time it gets into trial, it takes anywhere from three to five years. And once you've started trials, it's probably another five years just to do an efficacy trial. So I would be very surprised if we saw any vaccine in clinical use in less than 10 years. But on the other hand, if we know we're moving in the right direction and the preclinical studies are promising, I think that we will do everything we can to accelerate the process. And knowing that we have opportunities, I think, is probably the most encouraging part from where we sit right now. Now, Andrew, you went to the World AIDS Congress in Vienna this summer, and you're in touch frequently with AIDS researchers. Do you feel that Gary Nabel's mood of restrained optimism is re- reflects the field in general? Yeah, I mean, I think, personally, I'd emphasize the restraint rather than the optimism. Um, clearly, there has been progress. He talked about the Thai trial last year, which was at last an important breakthrough in uh, test in humans. But, uh, you know, this is an extraordinarily difficult scientific field. We've seen research and hope dashed one after another for more than two decades. You know, vaccines as an idea, of course, is incredibly appealing because of the challenge of changing behavior and the difficulties of attacking the virus and treating. But we've seen much more significant and rapid turnover in treatment, the development of new drugs that are pretty effective and much, much slower work on a vaccine. So I think there have been some important breakthroughs. It is, of course, necessary to keep going, but it's going to be an awful long time. And I think even the best possible HIV vaccines are going to have to be used in combination with other techniques to limit the spread of the virus. But it does seem that funding is going to continue. We need these good news stories if we're going to eventually have an HIV preventive vaccine. We need to hear about successful clinical trials. We need to hear about the basic science of neutralizing antibodies and to hear that there are bits on this extraordinarily changeable virus which can be targeted so that an AIDS virus in South Africa can be targeted with the same vaccine as an AIDS virus in in North America. Do you think the funding will continue so that this work can be brought to fruition? Well, it's a big challenge, clearly. I mean, there are so many demands at the moment on resources on health in general, and even specifically on HIV, which, of course, has had a very large, if not disproportionate, focus of money spent on it by international donors and by some of the countries worst affected. But I think it's absolutely right, you know, that this should continue. The scientific understanding of the mechanisms behind HIV are very important, both for treatment and for prevention, such as a vaccine. Certainly the last few months, it is good to hear progress on prevention techniques going forward. It's an interesting time. And it's also a time, I think, when there's been a bit of a rejuvenation by a newer group of scientists coming into the field after quite a long period maybe of frustration by the previous generation that seemed to be not really progressing very far. Thanks, Andrew. Now, I hope your mind hasn't been wandering while Andrew and I have been talking, but if it has, you probably don't feel too good about it, as we'll hear from Robert Frederick and Science Magazine in Washington. Thanks, Clive. Whether at work, sweeping the floor, taking care of children, or really any activity, including having sex, 
New research in the latest issue of Science suggests that focusing your mind on what you are doing while you are doing it is correlated with being happier. But a lot of the time, people's minds wander. In about 47% of samples, people said there was something other than what they were doing that they were thinking about. Matt Killingsworth at Harvard University is co-author of a paper reporting that while mind-wandering is common, a wandering mind is an unhappy one. It was ubiquitous in the sense that the rate of mind-wandering was greater than 30% in every activity other than sex. So this really seems to be something that not only happens often, but really pervades people's experience day-to-day. Or at least the day-to-day experiences of the thousands of people who own Apple iPhones and signed up to participate in Killingsworth's study, which makes use of the smartphone to survey participants. Certainly, you know, our sample isn't a random sample of all humans on Earth, and we would certainly make no claims that that's the case. But the kinds of relationships that we're seeing don't seem to have much relationship to things like people's income or other factors that might be biased in the people that we're looking at or in the way that we're studying them. The way that happens is that an application via the smartphone asks people at random times during the day to report how they are feeling, what they are doing, and whether they were thinking about something other than what they were doing. That last question could be answered in one of four ways. No, yes, mind wandering about something pleasant, yes, about something neutral, or yes, about something unpleasant. Again, study author Matt Killingsworth. Not only were people less happy when they were mind-wandering, they were less happy even when the topic of mind-wandering itself was pleasant. Of course, it's very possible that people might just be mind-wandering because they were unhappy to begin with. And so to try to begin to tease that apart, we conducted a time-lag analysis. And what we found with that analysis was a strong relationship between mind-wandering and future unhappiness, but no relationship between current unhappiness and future mind-wandering consistent with the idea that mind-wandering itself seems to be causing unhappiness. Now, previous studies have shown that mind-wandering is essentially the default mode of operation, allowing us, no matter what we're doing, to contemplate past events, plan for the future, or even think creatively about things that don't exist. Jonathan Schooler researches mind-wandering and other types of what's called meta-awareness at the University of California, Santa Barbara. We've known that negative mood increases mind-wandering. If you induce negative mood in the laboratory, that leads to increased mind-wandering, and depressed individuals tend to mind-wander more. But this sort of ubiquitous finding that individuals tend to be less happy when they're mind-wandering is really groundbreaking. But, Schooler says, that's not to suggest that people should avoid mind-wandering, but just be mindful about what you're mind-wandering about even defend the negative mind-wandering. I mean, look, if you've got a difficult problem to solve, it may be painful to think about it as you try to work through what are the assortment of options, none of which are really ideal. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. What's key, say both Schooler and study author Matt Killingsworth, is that in terms of your happiness, what you do is separate from what you think about. Study author Matt Killingsworth explains. If you want to be happy, you might make some progress by choosing activities that you enjoy, but when you leave the present, when your mind strays from those activities, there's no guarantee that just because you're happy to begin with, you're any more likely to you know, avoid the worries and rumination and other kinds of things that might come along with that. For Science Magazine, I'm Robert Frederick. You can hear more of our weekly podcast at sciencemag.org. Back to you, Clive. Thanks very much, Robert, and thanks to Science and AAAS. And that's all we have time for today. Please join us again next week 
for more fascinating tales about the world of science and medicine. Then we'll be talking, amongst other things, about selling sickness. But now I'd like to thank Andrew for joining me from Brussels, and thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.